I'm very pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Simon Johnson. Mr. Johnson is the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management. He is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C., and co-founder of BaselineScenario.com, a respected blog that explores the intricacies of the global economy. He is a weekly contributor to the New York Times Economics blog and appears regularly on National Public Radio's Planet Money. From March 2007 through August 2008, he served as economic counselor and director of research at the International Monetary Fund. He is co-author with James Kwok of the recently published 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover, and The Next Financial Meltdown. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Simon Johnson. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here uh, and, and a terrific opportunity to talk to you about the next financial meltdown. Yes, <laughs> when you put it like that, it does seem a little extreme, right? And, and I get this reaction quite a bit in, in, in Washington. People say, well, Simon, you know, you make some good points. It's an interesting book. But aren't you exaggerating? I mean, we had, we had I think we agree, we had a financial meltdown in September 2008. You, you remember that. And, and, I, and I think we agree, actually, across the political spectrum, um, that that was the worst financial crisis since World War II. The president said that. Many other people have said that. So what are the chances you're going to have another one? And Secretary uh, of the Treasury, Tim Geithner, who, who is a very well-credentialed and established public servant, says that what actually happened in September 2008 was, um, was bad luck, very bad luck. It was, yeah, extremely bad luck. Um, it was, it, but, it, but it was a shock. It was a random occurrence. It was a 40-year flood, actually, is what he said. That's exactly what he says. So it doesn't happen that often, according to him. And he says also you shouldn't overreact, because if it only comes every 40 years, and, and you... If, if that's Tim Geithner, I, 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 I asked him to wait until I was at least halfway through. Um, if, it, if it only happens every 40 years and you overreact and you overregulate, you do too much, then, as Mr. Geithner says, you'll regret it between years one and 39. Yeah, that's my reaction. Uh, so, is that, is, that, is that the case? Is it the case that this was just a random bad luck, small, low probability events kind of got together and, and gave us something unpleasant? Or, and this is our view, and this is the view expressed in the book, have we changed did, 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 the, did the structure of our economy and the nature of our financial system change over the past 30, perhaps 40 years to become more dangerous? So that we agree, actually, again, and, and Mr. Geithner would not contest the idea that we have regular shocks to the world economy. We have shocks, actually, about every three, four, five, seven years, depending on who you listen to. Hank Paulson, former Secretary of the Treasury, says three to five years. Jamie Dimon, who's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, I think one of the most dangerous men in America, we'll come back to him, uh, says every four to six years, Larry Summers, the director of the National Economic Council in the White House, says every five to seven years. We have these shocks, that's clear. They don't always, they haven't always given us this enormous disruption that we had in September 2008. So will they do it again? Have we fixed the structure? If there's a structural problem, if, if I can convince you in the next 
half hour, there's a structural problem that finance has become more dangerous, that the mega banks have become... Yeah, don't worry, I speak for half an hour, then you get to, then you get to question me for half an hour when he checked his watch. Um, don't worry, I'm with you for a full hour. Uh, is it the case, if it's the case, if I can persuade you that something about the structure of this economy changed and the financial system became more dangerous, have we fixed it? No, obviously we haven't fixed it. It's been 18 months. Are we going to fix it? Will the legislation currently before Congress fix it? And I think, to tell you the bottom line of, of, of everything I want you to take away today, I think, no, we probably won't fi fix it. I, I think it's worth fighting for. As I'll explain, I think that fight is very important. And I do think that we will win on this issue, but not in this legislative cycle. And that's actually, that's actually the message I want you to take away. I, I, want, you, I want you to go, when, people, when you go home, people say, so what did he say? You say, well, there's a bunch of economics. I didn't quite get that. And, and, and he seemed pretty negative. He seemed pretty negative on the banks and the big bankers. He had a lot of insulting things to say. Some of them were funny and some of them weren't. Um, but, you know, at the end, he was kind of optimistic. And I really don't get that. I don't understand. Why could this guy, he's written this book. He spent all this time arguing out financial reform. And he's so negative about people in Washington who were supposed to be dealing with this. How could he end up being so, pos so positive and so optimistic? And you can tell me at the end whether you can disagree, and maybe we'll even argue about whether I'm overly optimistic. But that's what I want you to go out with. We're all, I'm optimistic because we can fix this. I'm optimistic because, because you're here because you're worried. If I was addressing only three people in this room, I wouldn't be optimistic, okay? I, I'm serious. I give this talk in lots of different places. I talked to 450 people in Chicago this week in one thing, and 300 people in another thing. And people all across the country get this. You know, sometimes people say that the concern about the banks and the bankers and what they've become is populist anger. You heard this expression in Washington. Oh, there's some populist anger. I don't call it populist anger. I call it legitimate, sensible anger. All right? Seriously. I think, honestly, I think the further you get away from Wall Street, and I also go to Wall Street, by the way. I also talk to bankers. I also talk to, I, I talk to 13. I seek out 13 bankers. Now, only one of them is actually Agreed. They generally don't want to talk in front of cameras in public, which is unfortunate. One of them I was, was on a panel with me. I talked to leading representatives from, from several others. I debate this. I testify, testified on these issues, specifically the Volcker Rule, which was the administration's rather belated attempt to tighten their legislative proposals. Uh, I testified to the Senate Banking Committee uh, on that. A and uh, I was sitting next to a representative from Goldman Sachs, and, and I gave him a hard time, Jerry Corrigan. And, and Three seats away was the re representative from J.P. Morgan Chase. And I, and I just didn't have enough time to give him a, to really press him, because I was, I was so much on, on, the, on, on the case of, of Goldman Sachs. And um, I was quite heartened, I must say, at the end, when the J.P. Morgan Chase person came up to the Goldman Sachs person and said, boy, I'm really glad you were sitting next to Simon and not me. <laughs> you know... This, we, we ha, we, we've had a, we had a, we've had a financial system in this country for a long time that worked fine. All right? We started to deregulate in the 1970s. Now, deregulation as a broad topic is something I'd be happy to talk with you about. I think it's, I'm actually in favor of some forms of deregulation. I must admit, I like cheap air travel. I have to, I, I use it a lot, okay? And we can discuss the, the broader pros and cons of deregulation in different industries. But deregulation, I must insist, in the case of finance, has brought us into great danger. And it's very interesting how this happened. And it, 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 it did kind of sneak up on us, at least initially. The book, about half the book goes back and, and takes you blow by blow through how this happened. 
And there's a, there's a nice review of the book that came out just today on Business Week, actually, where they say, oh, the beginning of the book is fantastic. We love the ending of the book, but the middle bit's kind of boring. You know, the bit about how we obviously muddled our way into financial catastrophe. They said it was meticulously researched. Well, that's nice. Uh, and I appreciate that. But that, that's the point. You know, if you don't read the middle, if you don't understand the middle, if I don't convince you in the middle, the front and the end don't make any sense. Now, it was, what was heartening, actually, about the Business Week review was the, was the um, reviewer, who's, who's a very smart financial journalist, said, yes, this stuff is obvious now. And if that's true, that's fine. Then, then we won that point, okay? If smart financial journalists and their readers, including people like you, understand what happened between the late 70s, and, and you know, this did start a little bit under Jim, Jimmy Carter, it really pushed forward under Ronald Reagan. It's interesting, in the 80s, when Reagan was pushing for a lot more financial deregulation, the democratically controlled Congress actually opposed him with some success and slowed it down. The real move towards complete deregulation of finance in this country came during the Clinton administration. It particularly came when what we, I think, might fairly call the Wall Street wing of the Democratic Party rose to complete ascendance as demonstrated, or, and particularly represented by, Mr. Robert Rubin, who became Secretary of the Treasury, and who was ideologically very disposed towards a point of view that Alan Greenspan, who was chairman of the Fed and who was obviously a longtime Republican, had already been pushing. And it was that coming together of Rubin and Greenspan, reinforced by many other people in Washington, and, and, and lubricated by an enormous amount of no, it's not just it's money. Obviously, it's money. It's, it's, it's Wall Street. It's New York. You know that. But it's not just money like um, campaign contributions, although those are enormous. And it's not particularly money like corruption of the form we see in some other countries. I, I would emphasize it's money as an idea. And actually, you in Los Angeles probably get this much more than some of my other audiences. It's the ideology of Wall Street. It's the movie. It's Oliver Stone's movie, Wall Street, that he thought was a cautionary tale, and everyone else thought it was a how-to manual. And Michael Lewis, it's the same thing. Michael Lewis actually says exactly that about Liar's Poker. If you, if you are only going to read one book on the financial system and where it came from and what it's become, read my book. But if you're going to read two books, if you're going to read two books, the second book I would read is Liar's Poker, which is absolutely brilliant. It's a depiction of bond trading and Solomon Brothers in the mid-1980s when they were very gung-ho, hard-charging, taking lots of risk, and it is just so, um, so much like a small-time operation by today's standards. John Goodfriend, who was the head of Solomon Brothers, in the late 1980s, he was on the cover of uh, Business Week. They called him the King of Wall Street. He had a total headcount at that moment, around about 2,500 people. That's tiny by today's comparisons. The biggest uh, hedge fund in, in the country uh, has a headcount around 1,500 people. That's one hedge fund, right? So what... Michael Lewis saw and warned about in his own way in the 1980s, certainly depicted in a compelling way, is something that spread throughout the culture. And people in Washington became completely convinced that finance was good, unregulated finance was better, and completely unfettered mega-finance that would find its own size without restriction was the best. And that's exactly what Robert Rubin represented. Now you say, well, that, yeah, that's ancient history, Simon. Robert Rubin surely has left us. Although it's true, he did actually, now you mention it, become a key board member of Citigroup after he left Treasury. And he presided, while at Citigroup, he presided over 
Well, I guess he actually says he was sleeping most of the time. But he did get $100 million for being there while Citigroup was run onto the rocks. He said, well, Simon, don't be, don't be unfair to Robert Rubin. I mean, he did testify to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission just last week, and he did say that he was sorry. Actually, what he specifically said was, nope, nobody saw this coming, and I'm not really to blame. But, but Robert Rubin's history, history, Simon, that's over. We've moved on. Well, that's interesting, because next Tuesday in Washington, there's an event at the Brookings Institution, which, as you know, is, is a real powerhouse of Democratic Party thinking around a lot of issues. And there's a meeting of the Hamilton Project, which was the public policy project established by Mr. Rubin to prepare people for government, and, and it worked out beautifully. They've got key people throughout the administration. So they have an event on Tuesday. Robert Rubin is present. Who's the key headline act on Tuesday for them? Vice President Joe Biden. Okay. Now, if I, I, I've made this quite clear to anyone who will listen. If Mr. Biden goes there and he criticizes forcefully um, Mr. Rubin's philosophy and, and the Wall Street Review of the Democratic Party, then I am fine with him showing up. In fact, if he'd like to take my book and pound the table with it, that would be even better. But, but seriously, this is still with us. This ideology, the money is ideology, success. You know, you run a big company, you've made millions of dollars, you must be smart, you must be good, you've done something right on Wall Street, and you have something to, to impart and to share with the, with the country. And, and if that includes further deregulation, that's great. That, that's the idea of the late 1990s. That idea is still present and central in Washington. It, had, it did recede a little bit after the crisis of 2008. It actually started to recede up when, when things started to get a little messy in 2007. It definitely receded after September 2008. It's back now. Okay? It is absolutely back. We haven't changed the structure. Right? The finance became incredibly dangerous. The people, the people in the financial sector are very smart. They have great qualifications. They are um, incredibly good at spotting opportunities. And what's the opportunity they see? Well, take risk. Take as much risk as you can. And particularly in and around the big banks, the key is if things go well, you get the upside. And if things go badly, the taxpayer gets the downside. Specifically, for example, Goldman Sachs, just financed Geely Automotive, which is a Chinese car company, to buy Volvo from Ford. Now, that's an interesting investment. I'm not opposed to it. I'm a very pro-business, private sector person, by the way. I'm a professor of entrepreneurship at MIT. I work with entrepreneurs all around the world. So I'm not against people taking risk. And, and if this purchase goes well, if Geely Automotive really establishes itself as a leading car company around the world, Goldman Sachs is going to make out like bandits. Fine. But what happens if it goes badly? What is Goldman Sachs today? It's, it's a bank. It, somebody says a hedge fund. Well, it certainly has characteristics of a hedge fund. Certainly, they take a lot of risk. That's the Goldman Sachs private equity arm that's making that investment. But actually, legally, and, and from, this is a very important practical matter, Goldman Sachs is a bank holding company. It became a bank holding company in September 2008 because the administration at that moment, the Paulson, Secretary Paulson and Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner from the New York Fed decided that it was too big to fail. You could not let Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which were the only freestanding investment banks at that moment, fail. And the way they saved them was by letting them become banks. What does it mean to be a bank in this context? It means very specifically you can borrow from the Federal Reserve. You have access to the Federal Reserve's discount window. We have never previously allowed 
We've, we've allowed a lot of wacky things in this country and in our financial system, I must, I must tell you, over the last 100 years. But we have also been careful about certain things. We have not allowed people who make such explicitly risky investments as hedge funds or as what we used to call investment banks, we have not allowed them to have unfettered access to the Federal Reserve borrowing. Okay? Goldman Sachs was led into this window. It, it spent a long time negotiating with the Federal Reserve about whether they would have to change their portfolio because they were now a bank. And as far as we know on the outside, they're allowed to do everything they were allowed to do before. Right? The banks get the upside, and the taxpayer, represented in this case by the Federal Reserve, gets the downside. Now, if you were running that company, or if I was running that company, what would our incentive be? How careful would you want to be in that situation? Well, let, let, let me ask you this. If, if I were to, to give you, or if you were to give me, a lifetime exemption from speeding tickets, <laughs> how would you behave? Well, you know, I don't think you would walk out of here right now and, and speed. First of all, you know, you'd be cautious. You might have seen a big traffic accident recently. But sooner or later, you'd be in a hurry. And you probably think you're a good driver. Actually, almost everyone thinks they're above average driver, by the way. I certainly do. And you probably think you have a good car. And you'd say, look, you know, I need to get there. And you would speed. Of course you would speed. If you give the big banks this set of incentives, and the, this, these are the incentives for the guys who run them, right? And this is money, and this is prestige, and this is the attitude also of Wall Street. What are they going to do? They're going to take too much risk. Now, we can, have, we can actually have a good argument. We, we talk about it in the book, about whether the, our biggest banks believed they were too big to fail before September 2008. And, you know, you can make arguments on, on both sides of that. And certainly it is the case that Lehman failed. Lehman went into bankruptcy, and that was a very big part of the cause of the chaos that came from those, from those days. But today, <laughs> you can't, I don't think you can reasonably debate this question. The, the largest financial institution that we let fail in this country last year was CIT Group. We'd had total assets at the time it failed around $80 billion, eight zero. Goldman Sachs fluctuates, its balance sheet fluctuates around $800 billion, 10 times bigger, right? What are the chances if, if Goldman Sachs hit a rock today, tonight, what if they're hoarding a huge amount of Greek debt that goes bad, or whatever, whatever the scenarios you want to imagine, right? what is the chance that they will be allowed to fail tomorrow or over the weekend, to go bankrupt? Zero. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. They, you know, the President wouldn't do it. The Secretary of the Treasury wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Now, the Secretary of the Treasury says we have to have it's too big to fail. Goldman Sachs is too big to fail. They know it. They act accordingly. Secretary of the Treasury says we need to... He recognizes this problem, and he says, Mr. Guyton, says we need to have a resolution authority so we can come in and close down a failing bank and manage its failure more adroitly than we did for AIG, which also contributed to the chaos of September 2008. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a resolution authority. There's nothing wrong with extending the powers of the FDIC to take over and close down financial institutions. The FDIC is world-class at closing down small and medium-sized banks. It doesn't bail people out. It protects insured depositors, so you don't run to the bank when you hear some other bank is failing. That turns out, we learned in the 1930s, that's rather important. It generally wipes out completely shareholders, and usually unsecured creditors take a big loss. That's not a bailout. That's a managed failure. Okay? That's, I, I, look, 
I'm not a crazy radical of left or right. I'm the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. I can assure you, to get that job, you have to take a test to see if you're a crazy radical of left or right. And I did really well on that test, okay? I'm telling you, you know, what is technocratic best practice for managing bank failures around the world? And resolution authority is part of that. But here's the fact. Here is the unfortunate and, I guess, inconvenient truth. A U.S. resolution authority of the kind that could be passed or would be passed if they adopted Senator Dodd's bill, for example, in the Senate, will do nothing at all to help you manage the failure of Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is a complex global financial institution. It operates across many countries. Citigroup operates across over 100 countries. J.P. Morgan Chase is a global bank. Our other big banks are all have substantial operations in, in other big financial markets. The Resolution Authority helps you in the United States. It doesn't help you deal with these cross-border issues. And, and I know this because, remember, I know the people in these other countries. I go talk to the G20 deputies. I was in the UK this weekend. I had coffee with the chief regulator of these issues in the United Kingdom. I work with banking experts in the United States and other places. And, and, and this is the message from them to you. All right? If a global bank fails, a massive cross-border bank fails, there will be chaos, with or without the resolution authority in this bill. I support the Resolution Authority. I think it can help you in some instances. It will not help you with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan Chase or Citigroup. It just won't. Now, you can have a faith-based economic policy if you want. You can say, well, Simon, we just believe it will help us. You know, if that's the way you want to run your economy, then I'm strongly opposed, and, and, and I'll take you on every day. That's what our website does, baseline scenario. But if you just want to look at the facts, if you want to look at the evidence, if you want to talk to the experts, a big bank like Goldman Sachs is too big to fail. The Resolution Authority will not solve it. The only solution, or a key missing part of the solution, is to make our biggest banks smaller. Now, this is not to say that imposing a hard size cap on our banks would be sufficient for financial stability. I think some people have misunderstood this, perhaps deliberately, I don't know. It is to say, what we are saying is it is necessary, but not sufficient. There are many other things that you need to do, some which are in the legislation, which we support, some which are not, and we have a long list of other things in the book. Think about what our biggest banks have become. Think about how powerful they are. Think about the fact that Jamie Dimon, who's the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, wrote to his shareholders within the last week saying, we're big because we're good, and if we want to get big, that's just the normal market process and the government should not stand in the way. That view is wrong. It is dangerous. Their size is important to their success because they have an implicit subsidy from the government. If you're J.P. Morgan Chase, you can borrow more cheaply than other smaller banks that could fail. That funding advantage is calculated to be between 70 and 80 basis points, 0.7 to 0.8 of a percentage point. That's a lot of money in today's market. That's a huge advantage. They will get, it's about a $2 trillion bank. J.P. Morgan Chase, he'd like to get bigger. Citigroup, when it failed, I'm sorry, ran out of liquidity. Uh, I forget, you know. Uh, in, in fall 2008, was a $2.5 trillion bank if you include all the off-balance sheet liabilities they brought, had to bring back home. $2 trillion, $2.5 trillion. There is no evidence, and, and again, this was the reason we wrote the book, to go through this. The book has you know, 80 pages of footnotes for a reason, 
Business Week calls it meticulously researched for a reason. There is no evidence. He's checking if it's really 80 pages of footnotes. Okay, maybe it's 85. There is, there, there, there is no evidence of economies of scale or scope or any other benefit to society of having banks larger than $100 billion in total assets. Actually, to be honest, the evidence is that it turns neutral society, no benefit society, around about $30 billion. But I'm going to cut the banks, banks a little bit of slack for once, and I'll draw the line at $100 billion. Okay? $100 billion. After that, it's private benefits. After that, of course, if I run a bigger bank, I get a bigger bonus. I'm a bigger guy on Wall Street. You know how that works. Right? $2 trillion is far too big in terms of the social cost, and there's no benefits to you. Now, people say, Simon, come on, you know, two trillion is not that big compared to our economy, which is a $14 trillion economy, and in Europe, the banks are much bigger. That's true, and they're in big trouble. The largest bank that failed in the United Kingdom in 2008, 2009, was the Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS. It had a total balance sheet 1.5 times the size of the UK economy, <laughs> right? Yes. So if you, if you think size doesn't matter, tell me this. Citigroup was, as I said, $2.5 trillion when it failed. If it had been $5 trillion, would our situation today be better or worse? Okay, what if it had been $10 trillion? What if it was the size that RBS was relative to this economy? Let's call it $20 trillion. Would that be good? Would that be a good thing? Would it be better run? Would this bank be better run if it gets bigger? Do these guys have any idea what they're doing running this bank? Well, you can review the tapes for, for, from the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. You can see for yourselves what Chuck Prince, the former head of Citigroup, says, what Robert Rubin says. It's incredible. Okay? These people have no idea. Oh, there's two interpretations. One is they know what they're doing. In that case, we should be pursuing them through the criminal courts, which we're not doing. The other explanation is they don't know. They have no idea. They've bought into some complicated, crazy ideology, but they don't know what they're doing. Chuck Prince, though, Chuck Prince actually said, I think inadvertently, I know inadvertently, the most profound thing about our financial structure and, and about our future. He said it in July 2007, right before the financial, actually, when the house, all the housing problems were already clear, but right before the financial markets turned bad. Chuck Prince said, as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance. Right? That's how Wall Street operates. Right? It's, you, we have to do these things because everyone else is doing them. This is the way you run the business. This is the nature of the, of the beast. I'm just doing what my subordinates tell me is sensible and risky. And on our, on our website, we take you through, just this week, we take you through some transactions. Actually, a very, a very well-documented transaction where John Mack, the head of Morgan Stanley, is on record on transcript, from a transcript of a conference call with, with analysts as defending a particular transaction as a hedge, meaning lowering risk. We know what this transaction was now. It's documented. It wasn't a transaction to lower risk. It was a particular kind of very risky bet. John Mack didn't understand what he was talking about. He was the head of Morgan Stanley. Right? This is still the system. What, who are the 13 bankers? The 13 bankers were the heads of 13 financial institutions pulled into the White House in March of last year by President Obama. 
And of course, you have to save the financial system. You can't run this economy without credit. You know that. But what this administration decided to do was to save every one of the 13 bankers their, their jobs, their salaries, their bonuses, their boards of directors, their key staff, their empires, their view of the world. There wasn't even any embarrassment for what they'd done. Now, when you talk to the administration one-on-one, -on -one, the senior people, which I do, they say, Simon, you have to understand, you know, we are the people on the spot. It was our responsibility. If we had disturbed a hair on the head of a single Citigroup director, that could have worsened the panic, deepened the recession, and led us closer to a second Great Depression. I don't accept that, and the, the book, again, takes you through why we don't accept that. But just, just focus on that argument. And I'm, I'm completely serious. This is the argument from top people. Let's say it's right. That's incredible, right? That these people could bungle their way into disaster because of an incentive system and a belief system that's still with us. And when they're in that moment of catastrophe, you can't fire them, you can't get rid of them, you can't change anything about that structure, so you let them go with the largest, most complete, unconditional bailout in, I would argue, the history of the world financial system. And of course, you say you'll fix it. And the administration said that they would fix it. But what just happened? The 13 guys walked out of the room whole. It's Wall Street. That was the trade. They did it. They're out. Do they turn around and respect you? Do they defer to you? Do they do what you say? Of course not. <laughs> I mean, who are you? Right? They're done. Neil Wolin, the Deputy Treasury Secretary, finally got this two weeks ago. We have been screaming up and down for about a year. He, to his great credit, went to the Chamber of Commerce in Washington and delivered a fiery speech directed at the financial services industry and the big banks in particular. He said, you're spending $1.4 million a day lobbying against the reforms. And these are reforms proposed by this administration, which we are very strongly held positions. These are not strong enough. And still they're fighting them. $1.4 million a day. You have four lobbyists working flat out for every congressperson. Right? This is excessive and it should stop. And they said to him, well, I don't think that's printable, what they said to him. Right? And they certainly have not backed off. So, so what do you do? Why am, I, why am I optimistic? How can you be optimistic? So the financial structure became dangerous, loaded up on risk. This wasn't understood. It blew itself up. The guys who were in charge at the time said it couldn't be fixed. We can dispute that, but they certainly didn't fix it. Then they finally started to propose reforms. The banks resisted it. The administration finally listened to Paul Volcker in January. And we've been very strongly on Mr. Volcker's side for a long time. And they introduced the so-called Volcker rules, which were, again, late, not sufficiently strong, and it turns out they're not incorporated very much into the Dodd bill, frankly. So how, how, can, you be, how can you be optimistic in, in, in this situation? What, what, what's the, what, could be, what possibly could be positive about this? We created a dangerous structure. We let it blow up. We didn't fix it. We're unlikely to fix it now. Oh, it, it is true that there are three or four really good Democratic senators on this issue, and they tell me they have friends 
And so maybe we'll get 10 or 15 sensible voices and maybe votes for anything that would approach real reform. Well, in 1902, Theodore Roosevelt decided that large industrial and railroad trusts were bad for the country. And he decided to take on a company that was called Northern Securities that was, had just been established by J.P. Morgan and some other leading financiers. And nobody knew what Roosevelt was doing. First of all, they, you know, they didn't think he would win. The Senate was called the Millionaire's Club for a reason. There was no theory about why this even made sense. Everything you know about uh, monopolies and why they're bad for society is thinking, collective and individual thinking, we've developed since 1902. There were a few people, it's true, who had written about this issue before then, but they were outside of the mainstream. Big was beautiful in America. And Roosevelt said big could also be dangerous. And he sued Northern Securities. Now, J.P. Morgan came to the White House. He was pissed. Technical term. And, and, and he said, if we've done anything wrong, send your man to see my man, and we'll fix it up. And Roosevelt, to his eternal credit, said, no. And his attorney general said, we don't want to fix it up. We want to stop it. And they, they took Northern Securities all, all the way to the Supreme Court. They won that five to four. And out of that came modern antitrust. And out of that came the thinking. And the, the, the really important thing I want to, you to focus on and to go away with is the change in the consensus, the change in the thinking of people like you 110 years ago. Okay? In 1902, nobody like you, your equivalents, from across society, nobody thought that breaking up big companies was important, essential, or even a particularly good idea. In 1912, by 1912, everyone agreed that Standard Oil, one of the largest, most powerful companies in the, in the country, was too big. It was a monopoly. And it should be broken up. It was broken into 35, 37 pieces. The shareholders actually made money on that, and John D. Rockefeller rehabilitated himself in the eyes of the American public through his charitable gifts. It's a very American way of solving these problems, by the way. But that shift, that 10-year shift, is exactly what we need to do now. The opinions of people like you have to change. You have to... Not, I don't think, tonight. I don't think one conversation does this. I think you have to open your eyes and watch the debate, listen for voices you trust, follow the behavior of the big banks, study carefully everything that comes at you in this dimension, and change your opinions. The consensus has to shift. I hope we do it, by the way, quicker than 10 years. I'm not sure we have 10 years before we'd hit this next financial meltdown. There's no reason to wait for a crisis, no reason to wait for a meltdown. Theodore Roosevelt didn't wait. If you wait, you might get a Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who also did reform, but you might also get something completely crazy. So don't wait, okay? Take this seriously, study it carefully, read up on it. Everything on our website is free, baseline scenario, okay? It's completely there to explain things and to, to argue things out with you. Take this on, it's your responsibility, right? If you change your minds, if you bring people with you, we will change what is reasonable for politicians to do and what lobbies can get away with in this country. If you lose interest, if you are distracted by other things, if the messages coming out of Washington confuse you, 
then this is going to take a lot longer. But I think you can do it. I know you can do it. I became an American citizen. I'm an immigrant. It's not a funny, it's not a pretend accent. <laughs> I took the test to become American citizen. I also did well on that test. Um, who here took the test? It's a, it's a great thing to choose to become an American, all right? American democracy is based on people deciding for themselves how to vote and what to support. And, and there's a long tradition we go through in the book of a confrontation between overly powerful corporate interests and democracy, which is you. And every time this has happened so far in the last 200 years, democracy prevails. So, you know, now we have to do it again. Let's do it. Thank you. In calling our senators regarding this financial bill, what specifically should we say to our senators? You, you, sh you should say um, that they should talk to Senator Brown, Senator Kaufman, and Senator Merkley, and they should support the amendments that they'll bring forward onto the Senate floor. Okay? The, their amendments, th those are three senators who I think stand out for their clarity of thinking and their willingness to press these issues. And we also update our views on, 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 on all of these issues every day on, on baseline scenario. And a lot of, these, um, a lot of our material is, is reposted re, re on, on or cross-posted with the Huffington Post, where I'm a contributing editor. Um, but right now, I would t t urge your senators to work with senators, to work with Sen Senator Sherrod Brown, Senator Ted Kaufman, and Senator Jeff Merkley. They get it. John McCauley. Um, I'm just trying to get a better understanding of why, it's, um, why big banks are so bad. So if we do a little thought experiment and we imagine that all the proper regulations were, had been in place, and yet a bank still managed to become a multi-trillion dollar bank, would that be a problem? It's not really clear to me that it would right now. So, so what is it? Is it that when they get that big, they don't know what they're doing? Is it that they tend toward monopolistic powers? Or is it that they can sort of manipulate the political um, leaders to suit their own interests? What, what is the problem? OK, can I have all of the above? Uh, look, uh, what is the problem? Look, uh, and let's go to this point of effective regulation. Now, Paul Krugman, who, who's been a tremendous voice uh, for sensible thinking on this issue and on many other issues, said uh, in a column in the, in the last week, the breaking up big banks is not a good idea, not necessary, and we should just have effective regulation. Now, I'm not opposed to effective regulation. That's like saying I'm opposed to having a tasty dinner. You're going to have dinner, wouldn't you rather it was tasty? So, of course, regulation should be effective. But how, how did regulation become so ineffective over the past 30 years? It was an accident. It was long, hard work by these banks, particularly the big banks. And, and what we're concerned about very centrally, although this is manifest in both ec in economics, on an economic side as well, but very centrally, we're worried about the political power of the biggest banks. You know, Jamie Dimon and, and Lloyd Blankfein, Dimon from JP Morgan Chase, uh, Blankfein from Goldman Sachs, were recently um, referred to by President Obama as, quote, savvy businessmen. I, I think they, they meet one-on-one. -on -one. I think they have dinner with them. I, I'm not sure exactly, but there's a very high level of contact there. Now, they're not savvy businessmen. They are, well, they are savvy in, in, in a certain way, but they're not, their job description does not include global, you know, watching out for U.S. financial stability. Their job description is 
about making money for their shareholders. And Jamie Dimon said to his shareholders at their last shareholder meeting um, last year, we just had probably our best year ever. That, that's his perspective as a guy who runs a bank. Well, from a social point of view, that wasn't the best year ever. That was a disaster. So it's the political power. I would insist, first and foremost, on the political power of these big banks. If you don't take that on, if you don't fight them on that, you're not going to win on anything else. You, you know, you can wish for effective regulation. You may even, I mean, maybe Ben Bernanke, a, a Republican appointed by George W. Bush, or John Dugan, who's, who's the one, those are the two main bank regulators. Maybe they got, they got regulatory religion now. Maybe they'll do a better job. But the next time you get a free market president in, if it's all about having some, you know, good regulator, then it's going to go away. It has to be statutory. It has to be law. It has to be passed by Congress. Otherwise, it's not going to do anything. How is it that these mega banks or uh, investment houses get a lower rate of borrowing from the Fed than other banks? I mean, you, that was a statement yes, that you the, made. That, so let me, let me take that first. They, they, it's not from the Fed, that lower rate. It's from the market. Right? They, they borrow more cheaply in the private market from private creditors because the private creditors believe that they won't be allowed to fail, so therefore they're more secure. So where do, where do the Chinese put their money, right, for example? Um, actually, this is very interesting. In Hank Paulson's memoir, he says that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were taken over by the government, or all the creditors were protected, in part because the Chinese government lobbied him really hard to do that. And, and I would say to all my Republican friends, and I still have a few left, Okay, not as many after they see my post just now. But anyway, uh, what I say to them is, on Fannie and Freddie, they were right. They said those things had become too big to fail. They were, there was a dangerous form of subsidy, and they were right. But the same thing is true now of privately owned banks, right? Fannie and Freddie are government-sponsored enterprises. The private banks are now too big to fail in exactly the same way. So creditors are drawn to that. People say, oh, I'll put my money there because Jamie Dimon can't go bust. That's an unfair distortion. That's, a, that's, a, that's not the free market, right? That's a government subsidy at work before your very eyes, an extremely non-transparent and dangerous subsidy. What's part two? There is a gentleman named Matt Tybee. People probably here uh, know about him. And he did something, uh, some very interesting investigative reporting this week. And what it was was the city of Birmingham, Alabama, had a sewer problem, and the EPA said they had to fix it. So it was supposed to be a $250 million uh, project. I unfortunately don't understand all that went on, um, and I haven't read the full article, but in fact, J.P. Morgan Chase somehow um, got into the picture, uh, loaned them money, and by the end of the project, uh, in, they owed, five, they are now $5 billion in debt to that company. And apparently these banks are going around and betting on the states, and this could happen to California as well if it already hasn't. Uh, this, is, this is obscene, and I would like to know what you have to say about something like that. Uh, I agree. Um, look, this is, you've got you to understand, this is an industry where people, particularly in and around derivatives, which is how you think you're doing a small transaction and you end up owing $5 billion, um, particularly around derivatives, but in general across this industry, there are key people, particularly at the, at the mega banks again, although not exclusively, but 
these people brag, have bragged for a long time, actually, about ripping the faces off their customers. That's an expression in industry, right? And, and when people say to me, Simon, you know, you're a professor of entrepreneurship, how can you support consumer regulation in, the, in this space? And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not generally in favor of regulating things as much as you can. I'm, I would say I tend to be lean towards the, a freer market approach in general. But this is an industry that's got massively out of control. This is an industry that has ripped off people left, right, and center. And, and they won't stop of their own accord, right? Maybe they can't. This gentleman said here that maybe they can't. That's right. Maybe it's too deeply ingrained. You have to stop them before they do it again, right? It's massively out of control. And honestly, even if the Dodd bill passed and we got everything we wanted in the Dodd bill, which would make me much happier, we're still going to come back for more, okay? This is not going to be over for a long time. Hi, Alan Levy. Thank you very much for your talk. If big is not necessarily good and the gatekeeper from keeping organizations becoming too large is this mechanism, the HHI, um, why don't we hear about that? You know, the, what is it, Herfindale, Hirschman yeah. Index or whatever? Okay, so th th there is a standard way of thinking about antitrust and the standard ways of measuring it, and this come actually, comes actually out of the fact that Roosevelt took on the industrial trusts. And the story of, of what Roosevelt did and didn't do relative to banks is a bit more complicated. That's in chapter one of the book. But the basic point is that the banks, according to conventional definitions of market power, do not violate antitrust. Now, actually, I think we're going to have to go back and rethink a lot of our conventional measures. It is still the case that we have on the books some restrictions on the size of our largest banks. There's a, the Regal-Neal Act of 1994 says that no bank can have more than 10% of total retail deposits. Now, there's two problems with that. First of all, the big increase in bank size since 1994 has not been in retail deposits. It's been so-called wholesale financing, which is banks lending to other banks. And the second problem is that the regulators were so completely compliant that they let things as big as Bank of America be driven through the loopholes in that law. So your law has to be tightened. And, but that, that same um, restriction, that same instinct, is something we have already in our legislation. It has to be updated and amended, and that's what these very reasonable senators, uh, Brown, uh, Merkley, and Kaufman, are, are working for. It's not, this is not crazy radicalism. This is a very doable legislative approach to that problem, and then the broader issues, we would take them as, as, we, as we can get to them. So I think we really have to update and modernize the thinking that we inherited from Theodore Roosevelt, which is more than 100 years old, because the economy changes and, and the nature of the, the threats change. And I think, you know, we should also recognize the, the political dimension here, as, as, well as, the economic, as well as the economic dimension. By the way, the largest six banks in, 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 in our economy now have assets around 63% of GDP. Before the crisis, they were 56 to 58% of GDP. And back in the mid-1990s, when they did this Regal-Neal Act, they were 17% of GDP. Whoa. So the biggest banks are getting bigger. They got bigger during the boom. They got bigger during the crisis. Now they're getting bigger again. You know, I, I think this is the well-established uh, definition of insanity, right? To, repeat the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome. Well, that's where we are. From what I understand, more than 100 banks are expected to fail this year or in the next year alone. The banks that are surviving are burdened with bad loans, mainly from homes and commercial real estate. And yet the market is rallying for the past 12 months. It, it seems like we're getting some contradictory uh, feedback from what's happening out there, and 
really for selfish reasons, I just want to know where you think all of this is going. Are we headed to another disastrous recession or even worse depression? And what should I do with my money? <laughs> well, I don't give out, I don't advise people on their money, in and I'm certainly not in, a, in front of, in this sort of big generic way to an audience, but um, look, the, we did avoid a second, we did avoid the Great Depression, a second Great Depression, all right? And we avoided it with some sensible policies and some not very sensible policies. So I supported, I supported uh, the use of fiscal stimulus. I'm not somebody who thinks you should use discretionary fiscal policy in general. Actually, I, I oppose that. But when your option is have the world economy collapse or put a big fiscal stimulus in, into the economy, I'd go with the big fiscal stimulus. The consequence of that, by the way, um, is our debt to GDP is increased from about 40%. This is privately held government debt as a percent of the economy. It's increased from about 40, 43% to, this is my projection, I'm on an economic advisory panel of the Congressional Budget Office, and these are my numbers, not theirs, but their numbers are moving in my direction. I'm, I would say we'd end up around, around 80, 85%. So we'll double our debt to GDP just as a result of the measures we had to take to avoid a second Great Depression. Right? So, you know, Secretary Geithner says the program to, to rescue the financial system was a success and we'll make our money back on top, which was the specific capital injection into the biggest banks. I mean, that, that's, that's a complete misrepresentation of just, of just, just of the strict, straight fiscal numbers. There's no way you should look at the TARP program by itself. You have to look at the whole set of fiscal measures undertaken by the government. And there what we did was double our debt to GDP, which is not a good thing. We didn't turn ourselves into Greece, it's true, but we moved ourselves up into that area of, of danger. And it's good we turned the corner, it's good we avoided the depression, but the, the, the policies they used for the banks were this massive unconditional bailout that the 13 bankers got. You know, if you throw enough money at a problem, it does go away for a while, but there's a reason we don't throw, we don't provide unconditional bailouts to other countries or to our companies in general, or to banks, at least the small banks, the medium-sized banks that have failed, as you said. Because if you give people unconditional bailouts, it completely messes up the incentives. That's what the banks got. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. Of course there's going to be another meltdown. When? <laughs> <laughs> who knows, right? So who knows? You, get, you probably get another boom. You, every, probably, everything will get better. Next time they, think they want to hold, a, they want to hold a, a lecture and say, should we invite Simon Johnson? They say, no, no, he's so passe. Everything's going great now. Seriously. You'll have a boom. You'll I mean, that's the danger. You'll have a boom you'll forget. And, 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 then, and then it happens again, right? So I don't know when the next one comes. No one can tell you that. But the structure of the problem is exactly what led us into the crisis of September 2008. Hi, uh, my name is Terrence McNally. Um, it seems to me that this is yet another issue in which, to me, one of the basic solutions, root kind of solutions, is public financing of political campaigns, uh, where, in fact, their influence, now that they're 20% of the economy or more, would be diminished if, in fact, we had that. And yet, in, on the, instead of moving in that direction, we have Citizens United uh, decision by the Supreme Court your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, I, I, of course, would support campaign finance reform on that basis for exactly those reasons. But 
can you tell me how to get there? That's the problem, right? We, the problem is the, con the standard interpretation of the US Constitution, which you may disagree with, and I may disagree with, definitely doesn't support the kind of restriction on private activities that I think we both agree would, would, would be good. So I, I absolutely agree with that sentiment and, and, and that goal. I don't know how to get there. I know how to do this stuff, right? And we should do this stuff and we can have this fight. And remember that Theodore Roosevelt was up against the most powerful corporate oligarchic interests you can imagine. And Nelson Aldrich, who was the most important Republican in the Senate, and the, and the Republicans controlled the Senate from the Civil War uh, basically until the First World War, um, Nelson Aldridge's daughter married John D. Rockefeller's son, right? This was a very tight-knit set of people. And Roosevelt took them on and he won because people like you across society realized that this was dangerous and that Roosevelt had a point. And it, he, his, his support came from right, left, and center. And it was, uh, you know, when he was on message against these big guys, it was overwhelming. So that's what you've got to do to make progress. But If you actually meant that question, um, it seems to me that if you can put in if you can put into place public financing, uh, you don't have to restrict the free speech of the corporations. Uh, in other words, if you can make it that the, that the public puts up the money, they do it in Vermont, they do it in Maine, they do it in many races in Arizona, and it's exactly, when you say how, it's exactly the way you said he did it, which is that when the people realize that that's the, that's the root problem behind almost everything they face, whether it's healthcare, environment, or, the, or Wall Street, that it's that you only own them one day every four years or every two years or every six years, and they own them every other day. Go for it. But wasn't there a candidate just now who ran, what was the guy's name, didn't take corporate donations, made a big point of it, and was elected president, and saved 13 bankers? You know, it goes pretty deep, but I'm, I'm not opposed to what you're saying. How come there isn't the death penalty for these kind of economic crimes? Oh, well, that's a good question. The, um, I happened, the last banker to have been executed, in the, at least in the Anglo, that we looked into this, the la, at least across, and, I, and this I'd include the UK, because it's the same sort, of, same sort of problem, same sort of tradition. 1836, a guy called Fultory was executed for fraud that was committed while he was trying to cover up that the bank was in trouble. Now, we, we can discuss whether you want to go back there. You know, the... Um, this country, actually, a long time ago, decided that um, defaulting on your debts, for example, should, should not be punished by going to debtors' prison. That was, a big, that was a huge debate at the beginning of the Republic. And, and generally, the view is that you don't, in, in commercial activities, you do not want to have, if you have these draconian penalties, um, you, you know, strange things will happen. And, that, and that's, a, that's a very far cry from, from, um, from, from, from where we are. And, you know... The legal problem, though, I would emphasize, is, is very, very significant here. I mean, it's not that, I mean, the death penalty thing may seem slightly humorous, but is anybody even going to be prosecuted for anything? For fraud? Is anybody even going to, you know, um, when Enron collapsed, um, we learned a lot about the fraudulent activities they'd had, and um, there were serious consequences of people who were involved, including some, Morgan, some Merrill Lynch executives who had helped arrange. Uh, transactions, you may have heard of Nigerian oil barges. They basically, those were misleading transactions with regard to um, the true financial condition of Enron. Very much like Lehman had misrepresentations around what I think you've probably heard of Repo 105 at this point. Nobody, I, I, I am pretty confident, well, we'll see. 
I haven't totally given up, but I'm pretty confident you won't see criminal, you might see some civil action. I don't think you'll see criminal prosecutions out of what Lehman did and got away with. And, and that tells you, should tell you, that the legal restrictions around what is acceptable for people to do in the financial sector are, are way too lax. And that's actually also what some of my sen sensible uh, Democratic senator friends would like to do, is, is tighten, uh, try very hard to tighten some of the conditions around those sorts of activities. Yeah, really, I mean, the point is, the point is that this stuff needs to be criminalized, so there's potential individual criminal liability for people who uh, engage in financial behavior that is reckless. I mean, you can, you can get in a lot of trouble as a bartender in California if you serve drinks to someone and they get in a car wreck. How come we don't have a similar standard for re people running these financial institutions? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we should, and I think we should, we should modernize our financial structure and update it to reflect exactly that kind of concern and that level of responsibility that we expect from people. It, it's a part of complexity, by the way, right? It's a hiding behind complexity. Bartender serves you drink, you crash your car. Everybody gets that. Right? And it's a simple newspaper story. What the people on Wall Street did is relatively complex, relatively hard to explain. As, as, as the person said earlier, you know, what exactly happened in Birmingham, Alabama, or wherever, right? So, and that's, there's a hiding behind that complexity that should stop. Hi, Boris Pauly. Um, short question. Uh, based on your previous experience, uh, do you see the overseas capital flight as uh, any part of a baseline scenario? You mean money leaving the United States, yes. going out? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question, um, for which, which we'd need a bit more, bit more time. But you know, I think that the, um, the United States uh, still has great attraction to international investors for, for, for some good reason, as well as some too-big-to-fail guarantees that we should do away with. And you have to remember that you know, the rest of the world doesn't look that good. I mean, the Eurozone, Europe is in big trouble. Um, the emerging markets are booming, but they're also volatile, and, and actually a lot of people who make money in China or Brazil or India like to park the money in the United States. And actually, what I would worry about much more going forward is money coming out of those emerging markets. This happened in the 1970s, the so-called recycling of petrodollars. The money got parked with hmm, Citigroup, among others, and they then made not very sensible in retrospect, loans to Latin America and to communist Poland and Romania. So this round-tripping of capital, which is not the capital flight that you're worried about, but it, it's much more savings from around the world come to these big banks that are too big to fail, that they feel will be saved by the future Treasury Secretary, because they're so big, right? Just like the Chinese did. And that then gets lent on in crazy projects, probably to other emerging markets, actually. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy, and that's a repeat of the 1970s. And when it blows up, it takes down our banks again, or threatens to, and then you have to save them again. Or you face much more dire consequences. If it sounds like extortion on a grand scale, that's because it is extortion on a grand scale.